Thanks for ruining the mystique of the joke. Keep going. Oh, here's where the artistic differences start. I'm gonna go full McCartney. Daniel's obviously the legend. <laughs> yes, you're, very well, I say you're definitely the McCartney. Oh. Um, hey, McCartney's great. Is he plays he? a lot of instruments? Oh my God, you're the McCartney. I'm both. You're Harrison. <laughs> Not Ringo, because Ringo's obviously great too. Harrison's the worst one. I'm just gonna say now. I'm the Pete best. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Do you want to introduce us or do you want me to? Dateline! <laughs> 2021! <laughs> the March of War! Nose on the march! <laughs> yeah. Hello. Episode 5. Who'd have thought we'd make it this far? Yeah. Hello, I'm Daniel. I'm Abby. And welcome to Save Me From My Shelf. We're gonna have us a good old-fashioned British-American hootenanny. This is a big step, isn't it, for you, I think? Well, it's our first American text. Yeah. yeah you better believe it, bucko. Yeah. So I wondered if we should do, before we get into our text for today, a little bit of a sort of corrections section. Do you have a good name for this? I feel like we need to call it something. No. The one thing I told you in an email is, hey, can you think up a name for this? Glad, I'm glad to know you're hard at work. <laughs> so I, uh, I played the Gawain episode to my best friend Justine, who is a medieval scholar, and she has, she has some corrections for us all. So apparently uh, I was really wrong about all of Gawain's kit and stuff and objects being really Catholic. She said that that's more a chivalric thing. Um, Daniel, you were also wrong about pottage. I, the, the aristocracy. I don't think so. Okay. I think that here, I think this is probably a question of um, poor research on your mate's part, but actually pottage was virtually universal as a single midday meal between the years 750 and uh, 1512. Oh, check out Billy Big Ball over here. <laughs> she also uh, gave us a little comment on our Frankenstein episode. She went and listened to our admittedly short back catalogue. In the sort of literary devices surrounding popes and descriptions of popes, a monster has never killed a pope, but there are plenty of stories about popes being actual monsters. And apparently there is one in which a pope is depicted as a beaver. She gave me no details about this. That is all I know. No, but beavers that, aren't really monsters, are they? But depends on the size. Didn't they could thwack you with that tail? In probably. the Middle Ages, didn't they think that if you chased a beaver, it it had a defense mechanism that it would be able to chew off its own testes and like throw them at the pursuer to like distract them? Isn't that <laughs> yes. a thing that people in the Middle Ages thought, or like Romans or someone thought? Uh, uh, Justine, help us! We need. You know what we need to do? We need to set up an emergency line here, like just a red phone where people can call in with emergency directions. Yeah, it'd be like directions. a sort of uh, a horn, like a medieval kind of, <laughs> like the Flintstones phone, but medieval. Okay. Um, that's what I'm imagining. Right, uh, okay, well, this has been Medieval Hour with Abby and Daniel. I hope you enjoy listening to us talk about something we have no idea about. Right, let's get, let's get on to the literature, my God. What's our, what's our text today, Daniel? 
Imagine a world with um, buildings that are probably slightly too tall. Al Capone is dancing the Charleston on a flagpole, and women have short hair, and they kind of plaster it to their head in a kind of weird way. It's the twenties, the roaring twenties. Fatty Arbuckle's on trial. Yeah. Babe Ruth's been traded to the Yankees. It, it's the yeah, it's the twenties. <laughs> I'm gonna say it again. The roaring twenties. It's the Great Gatsby by Francis Scott F. Also known as F. Scott Fitzgerald. You have a weird pet peeve, or maybe not pet peeve, but morbid fascination with American people who do an initial and then their middle name and last name. Have you read The Great Gatsby before? Yes, I, I did this also for my levels. I think um, you and I struggled because this book is so good. I, I worry that I'm not going to be able to make this funny, but <laughs> again, why start now? That's true, yeah. The I'm going to give the default warning. We are going to spoil this book for you. And for trigger warnings, uh, there's actually quite a bit in this book, surprisingly. There are a lot of car accidents, there's murder, suicide, and a significant amount of racism, specifically anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism. Right, so let's do a tiny bit of background on this. I don't think there's too much to say. So, F. Scott Fitzgerald, hard-living, hard-boozing, sort of 20s party guy, kind of like you know, there at the centre of that 20s, roaring 20s. He was there, the one doing the roaring, wasn't he, pretty much? Pretty, yeah. Here's the thing about F. Scott Fitzgerald, he drank a lot, and he was obsessed with trying to quit the booze, and he deemed that beer didn't count as booze. So he would drink about 40 pints in a day, or something like that, and would just lie on the floor in restaurants, kind of making abusive remarks. 40 pints? The man must have had to pee constantly! Didn't F. Scott die in his sort of early 40s standing up at a mantelpiece. Leaning on a mantelpiece. At a party, yeah. yeah, he had, he, what did he die of? Was it a heart attack sort of induced by alcoholism or something? Probably. He, di he was at a party and people thought he just sort of like was kind of dozing standing up at a mantelpiece and he was just stone dead. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't realize is that The Great Gatsby, despite sort of seeming like a, a decade-defining book, wasn't actually that big in its day. It kind of got mixed reviews. It wasn't yeah. It wasn't as big a hit as it is now. Didn't it sort of get rediscovered after his death? Yeah, was it something to do with in the war um, it just got kind of printed out for the troops just as something to like, you know, occupy them and just the fact that loads of people have read it well, shifted opinion. Well, I think it's one of those things as well where it probably defined an age so well it captured the spirit of an age but when you're in a period you don't really know all the tropes that are then going to become yeah the owl of minerva only flies at dusk am i right hegel people oh yeah. my god you smug bastard <laughs> it's true though right isn't it it's only at the end of an epoch when you can recognize it for what it is yes exactly but i just got the eating grin on your face as you pull out some <laughs> hegel like you're well it's, it's it's a pretty basic hegel line a basic Hegel line. You are 12 feet of pretension shoved into a six-foot body. <laughs> okay, so despite all the dynamism of the 1920s that we've sort of discussed, we're centered instead around a human dial tone named Nick Carraway, who's our narrator. And Nick tells us, oh my god, the hand... I just think that's really unfair. I think I'm he's a great a, character. I'm about to get to that. Daniel just instantly, he, he pulled some, uh, you're all elbows and knees of outrage. Yeah, he's okay. like doing a real Charleston of rage over oh, yeah. here. 
So Nick tells us immediately that he's the most sort of honest, the least judgmental person who's ever lived, just this real sweet salt of the earth, good old Midwest boy who's came to the big city. This guy is phony as a plugged nickel. I love it. I love it so much. So I think this is a this is a really great introduction to sort of um, unreliable narrators because whenever a character or especially a narrator tells you exactly what they want you to think of them as the reader, that's a sign that they're probably not everything they're saying, right? And Tobey Maguire in the Baz Luhrmann film version played Nick very, very straight, but he's actually quite a bit different in the book. He's, he's actually a lot more interesting than he wants us to think he is. So he's sort of, I think, a man aping a himbo, but isn't actually one. So I'm gonna need to find an appropriate sound effect here. For he, he pseudo himbo. Yeah, he, he does not deserve <laughs> the full glory of the himbo sound effect. Instead, I'll give him this. I think the exact opposite of you. I think that his, I think he presents himself as incredibly sort of um, subtle and ironical, but is in fact a himbo. Oh, that's interesting. Like he's very aware of himself, but not of anything else. Every character in the book is like this though, and I love that. Yes, yeah, Daisy yeah. is exactly yes, like this. Yes, they are similar, yeah. Where you're like, are you just some sort of dumb socialite who thinks you're deep? Or are you actually a deep person pretending to be yeah. a dumb socialite? And, but and that ambiguity is all the way through the whole book. Yeah, yeah, and, and Gatsby's well. Like, you never actually know this, and that's what I love about this. So this book is read both as, like, deeply sincere and romantic and deeply ironic. Yeah, and satirical. You, you yeah. cannot have one without the other. So Nick talks a lot about his own perfect conduct and how he's constantly getting pulled into all of these other people's private business against his will. And this is sort of the equivalent of that one friend we all have who's like, you know what, I just, I really hate drama, but they're there with their giant spoon ready to like stir the pot. And I kind of think that sums up Nick. So the rest of the book, actually, most of the book is Nick telling this as a memory. So this book is actually a sort of pseudo memoir, right? So we're sent back in time. Nick is remembering himself as a young man who's just moved to New York. So he moves into this neighborhood called West Egg, and there are sort of two eggs on Long Island. There are these, these sort of separate islands. And West Egg is the- Soft and hard. <laughs> Both of these neighborhoods are incredibly wealthy, but West Egg is the new money part, and then East Egg, just across the bay, is the old money part. And so Nick moves into this tiny little bungalow next to this fuck off great big mansion, which is owned by this mysterious man named Gatsby. So this is like this incredibly weird setup. So imagine that you got to pay $80 a month to live in this hut next to Beyonce's like 400 room mansion. Like that's the level of strangers we're talking Some about. Some of us don't have to imagine that. Is that where you live? Well, temporarily I did live in a hovel. What's Jay-Z like? Well, I never really, we did once. I'd have to go and get a parcel from the doorstep, but <laughs> once, but. Nick drives over to East Egg to have dinner with his cousin Daisy and her husband Tom Buchanan, and these are crazy old money people. These are the sort of people who somebody would like whisper in hushed tones at a party something stupid like, did you know that they own all the sidewalks on the East End Seaboard? You know, like that level of money, they just own everything. And Tom was this really great athlete back in the day. Um, he's sort of this brutish hulking guy, but he peaked at 21. So, quote, everything afterward savored of anti-climax. So this is gonna be healthy. This guy is well adjusted. And what a surprise, Nick discovers that Tom is a massive racist. Huh, it's almost like this guy's just a twat. So at their mansion, Nick meets up with 
Daisy, who's like his cousin a couple of times removed, and he's kind of half in love with her, and he also meets her best friend, Jordan Baker, who's also this female professional golf player, and a, quote, slender, small-breasted girl who looks like a young cadet. The dream. Yeah, what, what am I going to say here, Daniel? Uh, well, the... I mean, this is all from Nick's perspective, isn't it? Yeah. He finds it very attractive that she does look like a, small, uh, a young cadet. Right, so one plus one equals... Queer, Queer reading! Yes. Well, well... Turn around. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, we've already had one with um, Tom as well. Mmm! He seemed to fill those glistening bilts until he strained the top lacing, and you could see a great pack of muscles shifting when his shoulder moved under his thin coat. Ooh. And he's in love with Daisy, who's like the most femme of femme women. So Nick is straight. He's all over the shop. Up. Oh, yeah. Uh, come, come now. He's bisexual. All oh. over the shop. So I think what's really interesting about both Daisy and Jordan is that they are two flavors of the manic pixie dream girl. So Daisy's much more of a, I'm a quirky southern belle type. I'm just a china teacup made out of unicorn laughter, and Jordan is far more the like, I'm a spontaneous and aggressive tomboy type. I'm 95% cheekbones, and the other 5% is Rhapsody in Blue. And what's cool about them is that they're both manic pixie dream girls who are believable and complex. I mean, Zoe Deschanel could never. Zoe, call me if there's any confusion about your limitations. I have some notes. <laughs> so here we have our main cast, apart for, from our mysterious lead who we haven't met yet. So we have the phony, the brute, the magnolia flower, and the Chrysler building. It's like the results section of a shitty Cosmo quiz. <laughs> so Jordan asks Nick, if you know, since he's living over in West Egg, if he knows somebody named Gatsby. What Gatsby? <laughs> well, I was gonna say, Daisy instantly loses her rag and she starts going, Gatsby, what Gatsby? I mean, what, nothing, Gatsby, never heard of nobody, nothing suspicious, nothing. They have dinner and the telephone rings and this sparks a huge fight between Daisy and Tom. And Jordan leans over to Nick and whispers that Tom's got a mistress in the city and it's tacky that he lets his mistress call at dinner time. Nick tries to save the mood of the party, so he and Daisy go for a long walk and she decides to tell the story. This is a very bizarre story to tell somebody who you haven't seen in years about when her daughter is born. And when she found out her daughter was a girl, she said, quote, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. And apparently that is word for word what Zelda Fitzgerald said when her and F. Scott's daughter was born. Yeah. Um, I just really love 20th century rich white woman malaise. <laughs> yes, bitch, do a bunch of pills and look out the window. Make that depression sing! <laughs> I find it weirdly funny, even though it's obviously very Daisy's sad. a funny character, isn't she? I've become very cynical about everything. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> I think, obviously she's in many ways justified in her cynicism, but also the fact that she would say that, which well, seeming so shallow. I've really got into being cynical. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And Tom inexplicably takes to Nick in this sort of macho, bullying, I'm gonna put a saddle on you and ride you around like it's my birthday sort of way. And he says that they're gonna have this jolly boys day out in the town tomorrow and Nick's like, oh god, but he can't find a polite way to get out of it. Tom introduces Nick to his mistress, one Myrtle Wilson, the wife of George, who is a kind of sort of down at heel mechanic. Can I just say... Myrtle Wilson, fucking jackpot, 1920s name. Yeah, Myrtle, who runs a garage in the Valley of Ashes, which is a kind of giant junkyard sort of thing between... Like um, the train tracks, isn't it? Well, I looked it up and apparently it's, 
Flushing Meadows, which is apparently a big park now. So oh, she, oh, they live in Flushing. Okay. But apparently back then it was just a huge, literally like a junk heap. Like it was just full of like rubbish. Dirtbag country is what we're saying here. So Nick, Tom, and Myrtle they all come rendezvous and go to a flat that Tom has in New York City, and they have a bit of a knees up. Bit of a knees up. Oh, that's a Britishism. What's yeah. that mean? I've never heard that one before. Party. Oh, is that what is that implying? Because you're dancing and your knees are up. I thought it implied something dirtier, but okay. Maybe. Well, <laughs> First one, then the other. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, both of those happen at this party because yeah. this is a this is a raunchy rendezvous, isn't it? Uh, if you say so. Well, um, it is because she and I mean Myrtle and Tom spend quite a bit of time macking on each other, don't they? Yes, yes, you're right. Yes, they all get drunk. Nick says that this is the second time he's ever got drunk in his life. <laughs> what a fucking nerd. There's a few more little drip drips about Gatsby. Cousin of the Kaiser, apparently knew von Hindenburg or something like that. Yeah. Like he's something to do the First World War. I love all of these rumors about Gatsby because over the course of the book, they just keep getting increasingly outlandish. Like by the end, people are like, "Did you know that Gatsby is just eighty-five cufflinks stacked on top of each other under a trench coat?" Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, ridiculous. Yes. This is a sign of a bad party when all you can do is spend your time talking about better parties at this mysterious man named Gatsby. Has. Well, the whole thing's a bit sort of. Scuzzy, seedy, yeah. seamy, all of yeah, the above. Yeah, there's bad liquor, there's, you know, they, they try to force Myrtle's sister on Nick and yeah. he's really not having it. But they and get the old, you know, simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. That's yeah. the great line, isn't it? Him kind of, I'm kind of entertained by all the debauchery, but also kind of repulsed. That's, I think, the one honest thing that he says in the whole <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I love his description of Myrtle or about her, like, sort of smoldering as she comes down the stairs. That's quite a kind of... Yeah. Uh, evocative sort of bit of her. Well, Myrtle is the exact opposite of Daisy in that she... I mean, they're both compelling in their own ways, but Daisy is very slender, little magnolia blossom, little delicate thing, and Myrtle is very, like, she's a little bit thick with two C's, and she's a little older, and she's, you know, a bit dumpy and trashy, but, Those, like, yeah, but yeah. she has this very, like, animal sexuality about her. It's Ariel and Caliban. Oh my god, <laughs> you nerd! Sorry, yes. I am a nerd, yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget like how the party ends as well. Um, everything goes real south when Myrtle and Tom get into this huge Oh argument. yeah, about Daisy. Over, yeah, because yeah, Myrtle says Daisy's name and Tom basically tells his mistress, you're not even good enough to say my wife's name. And so Myrtle's like, Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. And then Tom breaks her nose in the middle of the party. So over the course of the summer, Nick watches Gatsby's house next door I as... I bit. Sorry to interrupt you immediately, but this is such a well-written bit. Oh yeah, it's, it's really, really good. And Gatsby's house becomes basically party central. So there's just a perpetual shindig that's happening with this constant influx of strangers and this constant influx of servants cleaning up after them. And people at these parties never even really see Gatsby. Like, he's not super involved in them. And at first I was sort of wondering how Gatsby and his guests could sustain this like three month party. But then I remembered it's 1922 and the secret is cocaine. But so Nick talks a lot about the sheer volume of things at Gatsby's and just like everything is so opulent and so moneyed. And this is, I think this is my favorite part of the book where he says, quote, there was a machine in the kitchen. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I know, I knew you would like I this, love this bit. bit yeah. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb. It's 1922 and the secret is vitamin C. <laughs> the butler, however, is on a hell of a lot of cocaine, <laughs> so he can make all that juice. <laughs> 
So Nick is invited to one of Gatsby's parties one night and Jordan Baker shows up and together they decide, you know what, we're gonna actually hunt down this Gatsby guy at his own party. And they end up in Gatsby's enormous library and they stumble across this man who is going through all of Gatsby's books and he cannot believe that all of his books are real. He thought that they were cardboard because this was in a sort of period where like nice hardback books were still enormously expensive. So people used to fake being richer than they were by basically having books on the higher shelves be just made out of like cardboard. That's what I do. But the man does notice, he's flipping through these books, and he's like, wow, they're all real, but the pages are uncut. Do you want to explain a little bit about page cutting and what that is? Because that's not a thing that we have anymore. Well, isn't it that in the way that books were formerly produced, you had to cut them yourself? Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, the way books were printed, it would print on these big sheets and then folded up and bound, and so you had to go in with a letter opener and, like, imagine turning every page. But before you did it, you had to, like, letter opener it from the page next to it, right? This is a good bit though anyway, because like everybody's all banging on about Gatsby being like the cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm or having, you know, shot the Tsar or something mad like that. And then this guy, allies, he's closer to the mark in that he knows he's a fraud, but he's like a sort of true fraud. The books are like, real, but he, he's not- But he actually, hasn't read them. He's, but he's so honest that he doesn't even pretend to have read them. He doesn't cut the pages. There's something yeah. honestly fraudulent about Gatsby. I like that though, honestly fraudulent. It's like, yeah, J. Kardashian Gatsby. So after hours of searching, they still haven't been able to find Gatsby, but then this random man starts up a conversation with Nick and invites him for a ride on his hydroplane tomorrow. And then he reveals like, I'm Gatsby, bitch. So he smiles at Nick in a way that sends Nick all aflutter. Uh, and Nick just thinks Gatsby is beautiful, but he's like, this guy is kind of weirdly overly formal and affected in his speech. Like he's kind of rehearsed everything he said. And the one thing that Gatsby says constantly in this book is the phrase old sport. And I just, I really, really love the phrase old sport. It sounds to me like it would, it's the name of a bad cologne that Eddie Redmayne would be in an advert for. After making a really profound and very sort of sexy queer reading-y impression on Nick. Champagne corks are gonna be popping all over the shop here, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Nick and Jordan leave the party and they encounter a car accident on the way. And car accidents really seem to dog Nick, including a bit where Jordan almost hits somebody. And he sort of says, like, you really, you're a terrible driver. You need to be a lot more careful than you are. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. Yes, I'm a terrible driver, but other people are careful. So they avoid me. And he's like, well, what happens? Quote, suppose, oh, yeah, suppose you meet somebody just as careless as yourself. I hope I never will. I hate careless people and that's why I like you. Oh, yes, yes. That's what she says. Which again is kind of not... Because they're sort of starting to become an item, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So Gatsby comes to Nick's bungalow or whatever they call them in America, ranch house, and says, you know, come out for me for a drive. He's got this big car. Go on about the car. I, uh, uh, there is no polite way to put this, but Nick gets a crazy hard-on for Gatsby's car. I assume he's talking about the car. He might be talking about something else, but he says it is, quote, swollen here and there in its monstrous length. Girl, damn, we getting a little save me from my shelf after dark. God, yeah, that is recording. So come on now. That, yeah. So they get in the uh, dubious car and go on a bit of a... Dubious or majestic, Daniel? Same thing in my book. They go on a little uh, drive and Gatsby sort of like says, here's, here's the real story. I know everyone's been talking about me. 
but here's the here's the true stuff. And he he kind of says that he was like a sort of rich playboy. He was from a very rich, wealthy background. The Midwest, San Francisco in the Midwest, uh, he says, which is uh, <laughs> I suppose it's meant to imply that he doesn't really know what he's on about. What a crock of sh. Yeah, well, yeah. He says he lived in. Uh, he went to Oxford and then lived like a young Raja. Raja. I don't know how Americans say Raja. Look, young Raja in all the capitals Raja. of Europe. Raja. I looked like a young Raja in all the capitals of Europe. Paris, Venice, Rome. Then was in the First World War. Did a lot of crazy stuff there. Shot a lot of people apparently and got a medal, including from Macedonia, which is the one we all want, isn't it? But he shows the medal to Nick and also shows a photo of him at Oxford with some aristocratic types of spires in the background so we know it's real, it's bona fide. And Nick's like, well, the guy's somehow wants a fraud but also has all this evidence to prove otherwise so I kind of don't really know what to think about him. So, um, Well, that, that's the interesting thing about this section where Nick is like, God, this guy is a liar. The only culture this asshole has is bacteria. But then also I'm like, Nick... In terms of phonies, it, you're very much in the takes one to know one sort of camp. So it, but he's more like psychologically a phony, whereas Gatsby's yeah, like socially I, a phony. No, I know, I like that, but listen, listen to me. You wouldn't understand this as an Englishman, but it is your right as an American to pretend to be richer than you are. I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world where a man can't ride around in a giant penis car, you know, flogging his phony-ass background to impress a complete stranger. The, the sort of self-effacingness of your people, that, that look, that's for you. Okay. Not, not in my America. This, this is the American dream right here. What, I was going to try and get through this without mentioning the American dream, but you've done it now, so thank you. It's part of my liturgy, even if I'm yeah. behind in my tides. Well, also, it hangs heavy over the whole book, doesn't it? But anyway, the... Big final bit is that Gatsby says, I've got a favour to ask of you, old sport, but he doesn't tell him what it is. Uh, Gatsby and Nick go to New York City and meet one Mile Wolfsheim. Wolfsheim? Wolfsheim. Yeah, this is fairly anti-Semitic. It's quite, the bits about him being a gangster are quite funny. The bits about the anti-Semitic stuff are obviously not very funny, but... But Wolfsheim makes a lot of um, sort of inappropriate remarks about people getting shot and stuff, and he wears um, cufflinks inlaid with human molar, the finest human molar. And Nick's a little kind of uh, disturbed by him, but doesn't really know what's going on because he's so sort of... He's such a kind of humble, humble rube from, the, uh, from out west, isn't he? So he's like, is he a dentist? You know. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> he's like, who is that guy? A dentist? Who's like this very obviously a gangster. Yeah. I would just love it if this were a shared universe with Bugsy Malone. Because they go to the speakeasy, don't they? And if like... What if my wolf's son was a child? Yeah, he's just this like little ten-year-old in pinstripes. Yeah. How do you know that musical? I would never... Of course I know it. I would never like. have pictured you for a Bugsy Malone fan. Also, it turns out that he fixed the 1919 World Series. So he's a sort of... Uh, he's an all-around wrong and... <laughs> you don't give a shit about baseball. No, exactly. Who cares? Gatsby had a cricket bat earlier on, didn't he? So he's betrayed the American dream when he was at Oxford. But yeah, the racism in this section is strange, isn't it? Because you kind of there's a bit, bit in the ones as if it's more Nick than Fitzgerald. I mean, I know that like anti-Semitism was a very uh, universal almost in the kind of nineteen twenties and thirties and forties, and but I kind of wonder if. If it's through the lens of Nick, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. Well, it's because Tom already says that thing, like, 
Tom reads that racist book and talks about it, and we'll like that's almost like women to know that Tom's a bastard because he reads a racist book. And like clearly, everyone around him, all the characters are rolling their eyes, including yeah. Nick. Nick meets up again with Jordan Baker, who is kind of not his girlfriend quite, but not not his girlfriend. And she reveals that she has been taken into Gatsby's confidence, and she finally sets the record straight with Nick. So apparently, back in 1917, so five years ago. Daisy and Gatsby actually had a bit of a fling when Gatsby was stationed near her house during the war, and her parents came between them because she was rich and he was poor. Gatsby went off to the war, Daisy got over him and married Tom Buchanan soon thereafter. So this is basically what we're talking about is the plot of The Notebook, but with fewer geese. And I wanted to talk about... Have you never seen The Notebook? You're not. You would not care for it. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. I just want to pause for a little bit on Daisy and Tom's wedding. And their wedding was this just sort of like ridiculous royal wedding affair. And Tom gave her a quote, string of pearls valued at $350,000. And I actually looked this up and this is that they would be worth $6 million today or 4.5 million pounds. Chicken feed. But th these are pearls. Pearls! Can you imagine how many pearls it would have to be, how big those pearls would have to be? Especially on somebody as slender as Daisy. She would look like Dame Edna. Or, um, a cockney. The pearly kings and queens. I... I I'm staring blankly at you. <laughs> I don't know about the pearly kings and queens. I don't understand what words are coming out of your There's face. these cockneys that all wear, like, clothing laid with pearls. Are you lying? Never heard of that. <laughs> are you lying? No. Why would cockneys have that? Good question. Like Cockney gangsters? Like rich Cockney? No, I, I don't quite know what the point of the pearly kings and queens is, but they're oh. just a certain kind of Cockney, that a subcategory of Cockney that wears... I wish you guys could see my face right now. Yeah. Daniel and I are locking <laughs> eyes and his eyes are mocking me and uh, mine are just... Locking and mocking. Mine are searching for some sort of meaning. I think you're lying. Nope. Okay. Carry on. Alright, well please write in about the pearly kings and queens because he's not going to tell me shit. Okay. I told you all I know. <laughs> So on the, on the day before the wedding, Jordan comes into Daisy's room and finds that Daisy has for, I think the first time for her, gotten drunk and she is quote, drunk as a monkey. And she's just really sloppy with it. And she's taken this pearl necklace and thrown it in the trash like the brat she is. And she just screams that Daisy has changed her mind. Speaking in the third person about yourself, always a bad sign. So her mother can't, comes in throws Daisy in the bath, sobers her up, and she marries Tom Buchanan anyway. So it's it's then revealed by Jordan that um, Gatsby's confessed to her that he's just this big old romantic who has been, you know, he, ne he never got over Daisy when he went off to war, and he's been reading the papers for years hoping to catch sight of Daisy's name, and he's sort of been following Tom Buchanan's career or whatever, and I just think, could you imagine if these assholes all had social media Gatsby would have push notifications on her name, like he would, he would just be really insufferable about it. And eventually Gatsby bought his house across the bay from Daisy so he could be close to her, which is some weapons grade stalking if I ever heard it. Then comes the favor that Gatsby has been alluding to. He asks Nick, hey, listen, can you invite your cousin Daisy over to your little shack for tea? And then also I can be invited but we're not gonna tell her. I'm like, yeah, my dude, that's definitely the way to start an affair with a woman, is to ambush her in her cousin's hovel with a chaperone there who also has the sort of sexual energy of a house fern, airtight plan. And I just, I, 
I know that they're sort of trying to sell Gatsby here as much more of like a hopeless romantic type, but he is also slightly trying to alchemize like lemon cakes and Earl Grey into sex, and I just, I don't, I don't think my dude is great at seduction. So they have their rendezvous, Daisy and Gatsby, at Nick's shed. Um, <laughs> shed? It is a shed, isn't it? And Gatsby's really like control freaking. And it's all going very, you know, badly. Daisy arrives, Gatsby's really nervous. He's, He's like filled like, her the house with flowers as well, like an absurd level yeah. of flowers in this little tiny house. Yeah, he's mopping his brow, he's urinating himself, <laughs> uh, huge pit stains on his pink suit. You know, he's not enjoying himself. But then he decides to invite Daisy and Nick to his big shed, aka house. He kind of shows off all of his stuff to Daisy. Daisy's very impressed. She really likes his beautiful shirts. She's never seen such beautiful shirts before. Explain uh, what the scene is. You're not explaining it. So Gatsby kind of talks about how he's got a kind of guy in England to buy all his shirts. He, th he throws them. Yeah, they go to his bedroom. And he, yeah, he starts throwing shirts at her. She's very impressed. These are nice shirts. You and I disagree about this. Yeah, well, you're, I think we're probably both right. You find it very moving and think it's like a sign of their sort of... Uh, emotional constipation that they can't fully uh, articulate their sort of reunion. Whereas I think that they are pathetic bimbos. So now we go into a little bit of an aside and Nick tells us that he eventually got the real story of Gatsby's background from Gatsby. So his real name was James Gatz or Jimmy Gatz, which is not a sexy name. And he was from North Dakota, which is not a sexy place. I apologize to all our North Dakotan fans. South Dakota, meanwhile. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm getting all hot and bothered. South Dakota. Which one's got Bismarck? North. There you go. <laughs> uh, James Gatz changed his name at 17 when one day he sort of struck up a friendship with this man named Dan Cody, who was this older dude, richer than God, and sort of on a whim, Gatsby clocked this guy as a millionaire and decided to sort of reinvent himself as the type of young man who could be rich one day. And he's like, well, Jimmy Gatz is not the sort of guy who could be rich, but Jay Gatsby could be, right? I, I was just wondering, actually, if you had to reinvent yourself, Daniel, on the spot, as anything, you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be a rich man, what would you be? What would your alias be with your backstory? Clems Brigand, a... Uh, ex-fruiterer turned vegetable uh, sommelier. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to come up with that right there and then... Airtight yeah. backstory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's older, he's the slightly daughtery millionaire, and several women keep trying to exploit him. Uh, and it doesn't help that Cody is a really pliable drunk, and because of that, Gatsby actually learns to avoid liquor as a way of maintaining his power. So Gatsby becomes Cody's ship steward and general minder and sort of um, valet sort of They're on a person. yacht, aren't they? They tour the world. Yeah, they're, the they're on a yacht, yeah. and his sort of a... Uh, what I have written here is his twink of all trades because there's <laughs> there's a real uh, queer reading here that i don't think you can avoid there oh no no definitely yeah. 
So Cody teaches Gatsby what it's like to be rich, and when Cody eventually dies, he leaves Gatsby 25 grand in his will. But it's too late because Cody's already been Anna Nicole Smithed by this woman named Ella Kay, and she pulls some sort of legal wrangle, which means that she gets all of Cody's millions and Gatsby gets nothing. This begins Gatsby's street fight with the universe in which he's determined to get rich at all costs and sort of make himself worthy both of Daisy and to sort of be like how Cody taught him to be, right? So Gatsby is young, he's poor, he's horny, he's probably had a lot of cocaine, and he is just ready to punch the sun. And it's no wonder he fell in with gangsters at this point. Like, this, it's a perfect storm brewing for some gangster to come be like, hey kid, I'll make you a millionaire if you do what I say. So Daisy, Tom, and Nick, they all uh, go to Gatsby's next party, and whereas the first time it seemed really exciting and glamorous, this time it seems kind of tawdry, doesn't it? Tom is irritated at the party, especially because Gatsby keeps introducing him as the polo player. Tom is like, this guy's clearly just some big bootlegger and resolves to prove it. Daisy, meanwhile, she's pretty happy when she has a little kind of intimate half hour with Gatsby, but is otherwise kind of disturbed by the tackiness of everything. The party ends, Gatsby knows that they didn't have a good time, and he tells Nick that he will not be satisfied until Daisy completely disavows her love for Tom and marries him. I'm sorry, but this dude, Gatsby, will not touch reality with a ten-foot pole. We get the famous line, Nick says, I wouldn't ask too much of her, you can't repeat the past, and Gatsby says, can't repeat the past? Why, of course you can! So, after this party, even though Daisy didn't have a great time, She's impressed enough by Gatsby's money and his dedication to her that she and Gatsby start an affair. Okay, now, not, not to pun on this, but now to the climax of the novel. So, on a very hot day, Nick, Jordan, Tom, Daisy, and Gatsby, who's fifth-wheeling, all get together. I'm like, guys, please find different friends. This group of people should never all be mm -hmm, hanging out yeah, together. This, this, uh, awkward, uh, this is a bad yeah. combination. They all enter a little bit of a boiling pot, sort of literally because of the heat, when Daisy tells Gatsby in front of the whole room that despite the heat, he always looks, quote, so cool. Which isn't an objectionable sentence in and of itself, except that she gives him serious bedroom eyes when she's saying it. So they basically start eye-boinking each other in front of everyone, and poor old Nick is in the blast zone, and Tom gets really furious. So what does he do? He suggests they all go into the city together to continue the party. Welcome to hell! So then, okay, this is actually really important. So there's some, there's some alpha male bullshit that happens when Tom insists that he drives Gatsby's car into the city and Gatsby drives his car. And I do not have the strength to parse this toxic ass hattery, but given the huge penis metaphor we saw with, Ge with uh, Gatsby's car earlier, it's probably not too difficult to figure out. Shall we Shall we play a rousing game of Find the Phallus? I just picture Tom, you know, kicking rocks down a dirt road going, stupid sexy Gatsby, like, I'm gonna Is drive. that what you think? Because uh, I, I thought there was gonna be something much more subtle to it, but there isn't, is there? No, yeah. it's absolutely just like, he has the big penis car, he's sleeping with my wife, I'm gonna drive his big penis car. He can... It seems like he's doing a big swapperoo, but he's not, is he? Because there's mm -hmm. no swapperoo. Swapperoo's a new term I've invented. It's like switcheroo. <laughs> So Tom, driving Gatsby's car, pulls over for gas at the Wilson's shop. And again, this is, this is a really important but subtle moment. You don't realize when you're reading it that this is really important. So George and Myrtle Wilson, 
see Tom drive in in Gatsby's car, and they think this car is his. And George reveals to Tom that he and Myrtle are going to move west soon because he's discovered that Myrtle's having an affair with somebody, but he doesn't know who it is. He doesn't realize that he's speaking to the guy that she's having an affair with. So this is the point where Tom starts to lose his shit because he realizes in the space of one day that he's lost both his wife and his mistress. So he continues his drive into the city with everyone in the two separate cars. They all get a hotel room at the plaza and they sit around drinking and letting tension build. Yes, by all means. healthy behavior. By all means, yeah. yeah we're, we're like eight bad decisions deep already mm, this okay, day. Yeah. So Tom finally confronts Daisy and Gatsby about their affair and Gatsby is like, you are correct, sir. She's my honey, my baby, my ragtime gal. And guess what else? She never loved you. And at this point, Daisy's a bit like, um, well, well, wait, yeah. hold, hold on a second here. So instead she says, look, I did love you once, Tom, but you're the human equivalent of a foul wind. You're Satan's very own quarterback and I'm leaving you for Gatsby. And Tom says, well, hold on now a second. I have been investigating this Gatsby guy and he's in with a bunch of gangsters and crooks. And the sort of revelation and the general like horribleness of the day, because it's, it's this really tense, awful bit. It makes Daisy actually change her mind and she decides she's gonna stay with Tom. And I just really wish that Daisy would dropkick Tom over a mountain and like invent shoulder pads and feminism and start a business with Jordan. Doesn't Tom say something like, there's things between me and Daisy that you would never understand. You know, he, uh, they do have a... He's the himbo, if anyone. Like, that's the least... There are a lot of shades of himbo in this. So Tom sees that he's convinced Daisy to stay with him, and he says, you know what? How about we all revert back to our original car situations? Because, like, I don't need to drive Gatsby's big penis car anymore, because I've kept my woman. He's like, you guys say goodbye. Then we kind of cut almost like a, a film or something with Nick and Tom and Jordan arriving on the scene in the Valley of Ashes and uh, everybody's all crowding around Myrtle's been hit by a car and they stop and speak to George and George says it was the yellow car that he had seen earlier the one that Tom had claimed was his own yeah because she runs out to like flag down a car to escape from George yeah who's like locked her up because you know she's having an affair and yeah the car doesn't see her in time and hits her and then it speeds off. Well, she's under the impression that it's Tom's car as well, isn't she? So that's why yeah. she runs out to get it, but it's not even his car. Tom is like, I am very keen to impress to you, sir, that this is not my car. That That's actually somebody called, called Gatsby's car. And George's like, interesting, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> then they all head on back to East Egg and Nick runs into Gatsby, who's kind of... <laughs> Lurking. He's uh, banging his face into a, the trunk of a tree, isn't he? Uh, as... Wuthering Heights callback. Yes, yeah, thank you. I thought that though, I, I almost wrote that joke and then I was like, no, Daniel's got this covered. Yeah. Nick's like, you bound her. And Gatsby's like, oh, it wasn't me driving the car, old sport. It was Daisy. What? But he's like, don't worry, I'll, uh, I'll take all the blame. And there is that good bit where Tom and Daisy kind of Nick sees them eating together and he realizes they're an item again and he... Yeah, Tom and Daisy, like, she murdered somebody with her... Ah, it's man manslaughter, is not it? What, what do they call it in America? Manslaughter. Okay. She, she, she manslaughters somebody with her lover's car and because of that it rekindles the spark with her husband. And you know how they rekindle that spark? Chicken and ale. They drink beer and eat fried chicken at their kitchen table. 
God, Daisy is such a broken Barbie. Get therapy. What is wrong with you waspy types? Jesus. Right, they're all getting therapy, but then they're all going to Vienna. Christ. So the next morning, Nick goes over to Gatsby's house and he's like, Gatsby, you have to do a runner. Don't take the fall for Daisy. But Gatsby is in full self-sacrifice mode. And Nick is like, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, dial back the martyrdom a few notches. And Gatsby's like, you're not the boss of my notches. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to go for a swim until the police track me down so I can take the rap for my high maintenance girlfriend. Just like Jesus did. Yeah. And so he goes for a swim in his pool. There's a whole bit about how he has this wonderful pool that he's never gotten to use. And he finally, like, goes and he sits on his air mattress. The pneumatic mattress. And uh, George Wilson shows up at Gatsby's house. And he knows that that it was Gatsby's car that hit Myrtle. And he assumes, partially correctly, that she had recognized the car and rushed out to it because she was having an affair with the owner. And that's kind of true because, remember, she thought that Tom owned the car. So George assumes that she was having an affair with Gatsby. And he just walks right into Gatsby's big open house, which has been open all summer to any old person who wants to come party there. And he sees Gatsby in the pool, and he shoots him dead, and then George Wilson kills himself. And I would make jokes here, except I don't want to go to hell. Nick is like, Jay, Jay Gatsby, quote-unquote, had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice and the long secret extravaganza was played out. That it's oh all, my it's God. all over. This is such a heartbreaking novel. It's really good, but also every line also has the potential to be funny. And I... It, yeah, it, they're, they're poetical and insightful, but also slightly overdone. Okay, so Gatsby's dead. There's a bit of a media circus. Nick is the one who has to deal with everything. Then Gatsby's father visits, and he is pretty crestfallen. He shows Nick some of Gatsby's old personal effects, and he's like really proud of them, and there's this funny schedule, isn't there, when Gatsby as a teenager wanted to study needed inventions, which I like. We have the funeral, only Nick, Henry Gatz, and of all people, our lies. The guy that the book the library the guy, guy that was at the party attend the funeral. Allies is pretty miffed that no one else is there, and he's all like, "Well, everybody was attending the party." I mean, I'm, yeah, that, this is one of the, the the depressing things for me is that Daisy doesn't even go to the funeral, and I'm just like, seven hells, Daisy. Mm. I hope you are successful in finding an even bigger pearl necklace, one that you can hide all of your moral deficiencies under. Jesus. Well, we have that bit, don't we? Because so Nick is. Thoroughly jaded by the whole experience and decides that he wants to go back west. Breaks it off with Jordan and then one point before leaving he's in New York City and he sees Tom. Gives him a little bit of a telling off, Caraway style, which means quite a mild telling off. And um, then we have that bit where he says, They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together. And let other people clean up the mess that they had made. And we have this kind of final meditation, both upon Gatsby's failure, but also upon America more broadly, and kind of suggests that America is this sort of simultaneously a kind of pie-eyed fantasy, but also a kind of profane, uh, venal exercise weighed down by history and material need. And that's the sort of conclusion that we have. So it's kind of both fantastical and very cynical. Yeah, he's convinced the whole scene in New York is just hogwash. The end! Should we do some casting? Please. I have a brilliant idea for this. I always think my ideas are brilliant. So let's take the Leonardo DiCaprio version. Keep it mostly exactly how it is. 
Carrie Mulligan was all wrong for this role. Instead, mm. <laughs> get the woman who played Jordan, Elizabeth Debicki. Bump her up to Daisy. She is taller than God. Her voice is exquisite. She looks expensive, which is the key to Daisy. So this leaves the void of Jordan empty to be cast. Who do we fill it with? Peter Falk. <laughs> Just one more golf round. <laughs> no, but this this film, the, the Baz Luhrmann version is sadly devoid of irony. We need to put in Niles Crane. David Hyde Pierce. Not David Hyde Pierce, specifically Niles Crane, because... I like careful people, and that's why I like you. I saw somebody describe him once as a 1920s lesbian in modern day, and I thought, oh my god, he absolutely is. That would, that would solve all of our irony problems for the film. You can be as sincere as you want around that, but if he's there in that role, it's perfect. I think this is genius. I can see you sparking and trying to deny my genius. I think he'd be better as Nick. David Hyde Pierce. Maybe, again, one-man show. Shall we do analysis? Bit, bit of talk on the old book. I think the book might, in part, be about class. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a smidge. Just, just a tinge. But primarily about the sort of old money versus nouveau riche tension. Yeah. And, you know, there's a sort of, like... Tom and Daisy are simultaneously proper aristocrats and they'll, you know, Gatsby, no matter how hard he can try, will ever be able to attain their aristocracy. But then also Nick's ultimately like, well, in America, I suppose you're ultimately a hypocrite. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I know you were trying to avoid stating the phrase American dream, but it's, it's this idea of that sort of eternal optimism of being an American and anything can happen and anyone can strike it rich but versus issues of actual privilege where if you're born into this world as Tom and Daisy are and you're this old money, if you're an East Egger, not a West Egger, that, that, I mean, we're still talking about people who have absurd millions of dollars and yet there's this terribly great divide between them. But I think the point is that there's something even with Tom and Daisy who are like aristocrats, there's still something a bit fake about them. So like, Tom's always driving his horse, whatever you do with a horse, ride it. Gatsby has a car, and so you're meant to be like, Tom's an aristocrat, Gatsby's a sort of terribly, frightfully bourgeois. But then there's that whole bit about how Tom, oh yeah, I converted the old uh, garage into a, uh, into a horse stable, you know, so there's something fake about that, isn't there? That you, it's like, you would willfully turn your garage into a stable. He's like trying almost too hard to be an aristocrat. I think. Yeah, yeah, he's even fake compared to say like British aristocrats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and obviously the, the green light, I mean, you can find this on any spark notes, study hmm. guide, whatever. You know, Gatsby looking across the bay from his house in the new money part of town to the old money part of town, he sees a green light at the end of Daisy's dock. And the green light symbolizes her, and she symbolizes money. And there's a bit where they talk about how her voice, there's some beautiful quality of her voice, and her voice is full of money. So the green light obviously comes to sort of symbolize the American dream. Like, this is this is really basic stuff. You guys would probably get that on a first reading. You yeah. can easily find this on any sort of study guide. The class stuff is sort of uh, intersected by a kind of sense of a, a discussion of regionalism, isn't there? That, so mm. all of the characters come from the Midwest. 
and uh, then they all move to the East Coast and there's this kind of sense that um, Nick implies that all these kind of slightly stodgy, stodgy kind of uh, cosseted people are burned by the dynamism of the metropolis. No, absolutely. There's definitely a sort of Midwest versus East Coast vibe. There's a ruralism versus big city vibe. I wanted to talk a little bit about the glamour in this because I think one of the reasons why this book is successful is that it pulls off the thing that is so difficult for any author to pull off, which is that both of its leads are genuinely compelling and charming and glamorous. Daisy, by all accounts, you get this sort of Southern Belle manic pixie dream girl. You should hate her. You should find her insufferable. I was weirdly charmed by her. She's, she's funny. Isn't she, she's but... funny. She says things that are unexpected. You're sort of swept up in this and you have this sort of eroticism of her voice, which is why I think it's really hard to adapt this because there's some sort of X quality yeah, that completely intangible. It, it, it leaves it leaves it to the reader's imagination where you're like they say her voice is magic and no actress is going to be able to fill that void, right? They're both very sort of mysterious. They're all excess and exterior and they don't really let you in to what I think is an equally rich sort of internal life. Like Daisy says these sort of bimbo-ish non sequiturs but then she has this I think this really sort of savvy nature and she has this deep sadness under this bubbliness. I think it's something more complicated than that. I think that they are stupid people their sort of conscious self-regard that of Gatsby and Daisy is ultimately very shallow but just in their capacity ultimately is complex humans. What they, there is they, something going on underneath, but they're not even fully capable of articulating it. I mean, that that well, that might well be the case. These are very, I think, clearly very complex portrayals yeah, no, of it's, people. Yeah, it's really great characterization. It's, yeah, yeah it's, it's great. I mean, again, you're viewing it from a much more cynical place. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, yeah. that's fine. That, but this is why, friends, this is why, talk about books with people in your life, talk about books with your friends, fight with them about it. Daniel and I have had days long fights about books and that is a wonderful way to actually get to know literature really well because it makes you, you're forced to justify your choices and it makes you really actually think about what you're reading rather than just passively absorbing it. It's nice actually. Fight with your friends is what I'm saying. I love the way they portray Myrtle Wilson in this. She is so sexualized and yet so unglamorous and it's rare to have those two things together mm, yeah because even when they talk about um when she dies they talk about her blood is thick and mingles with the dust and she's sort of desexed by having one of her breasts ripped off and and things like that she and Gatsby are of a piece they're of a they? piece but he is the one that finds pull it off find some way to climb yeah. out of it and she tries to and she doesn't have the resources yeah. to and I think like when you understand Myrtle, you'll understand the entire rest of the book. So let's move on to a bit of advice. My advice is, because I've read this book now, this is the third time I've read it. The first time I read it, I was completely unimpressed, completely underwhelmed. Read a book more than once. You're not gonna get everything out of a book on just one read. Like sometimes a book's plot can kind of get in the way of everything else a book is doing. It can, it can sort of overwhelm you. That's why I hate plot. And also love it. My point is, read a book more than once, and especially if you hate a book, okay, well maybe wait five years, try to read it again, see if it's something you still hate or if your mind has changed. If there's a book that I hate, go on. Before I read it, I give it a read once through and then read it. Great advice, Daniel. Yeah. 
You've never read a book more than once in your life. I never read a book, so... Right, so what's the clue to our next episode? It is a, um, book. Um, Thank you. It is, um, uh, quite, um, boring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh not in... It was no. ridiculed by contemporaries. Okay, right. That's that's those are terrible clues. Those are those are dreadful clues. Okay. Daniel's a bad clue giver. Like, no, this is the first novel we've done on this show from the 18th century. And guys, I think you're in for a real treat because I'm going to be real salty in our next episode. I hate this book so fucking much that the rage is going to be coursing through me like venom in the next recap. And the, the, the major clue is there's not one, but two evil housekeepers in it. I would say there's definitely one evil housekeeper. You're incorrect. So please write into our email at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for books you'd like us to recap, if you disagree with us to any extent, if you just have any factoids about any of the books we've read or authors we've read or anything just what any. we haven't read and please guys subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen so i've i've just been sort of uh, dealing with the hell that is algorithms for podcasts apparently it's worth more on your phone and it just makes it easier for people to find our podcast if people are already subscribing to it it's one of those sort of in the spirit of gatsby it's easier to make money if you already have money sort of thing so do we have a better sign off do we have yeah, any sign off yeah. Sincerely yours, Abby and Daniel. Yes, Tara. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Center for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on twitter and do not i'm going to remind you do not forget to rate review and subscribe do not forget thank you <laughs>